And it's a real sobering thought to look at the character of Judas and, the, and really it's easy to remove yourself from it and be like, but the intention of John's gospel is what? That we might believe. And to look at the life of Judas and say, let that not be me. Because all of us in a sense have betrayed Jesus in our speech, in our action. We've betrayed him in the sense that we're children of, of God, but yet we betray that with our speech or in our actions and, and things like that. But may it not be so that we claim the name of Christ, but never fully take on the identity of Jesus in, uh, in our lives. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. guys tonight. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 13? Lord, we thank you for tonight and an opportunity, God, to be in your word again. And Lord, we pray as we as we make our way through the gospel of John and someday in the near future, finish this book. Lord, we pray, God, that you continue to get your word into us. And it wouldn't just be something we know or something we hear, uh, but it would, it would take root within our heart. And God, it would mean more, into, more to us uh, than it has before. And so, Lord, as we read this, as John intention, his intention originally was that we might believe. God, we pray as we make our way through the book, God, that our faith would be strengthened. God, that our, our faith would go deeper in you. And um, Lord, those that are struggling with doubt and really tossing around some of these big ideas, Lord, we pray that this book of the Bible would really, again, solidify for us who you are in our lives and um, that God, you are the savior of the world. And so we love you, Jesus. We, we praise you in your name. Uh, amen. All right. Chapter 13, verse 18, it says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked to one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore mentioned, or motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Um, it's an interesting passage of scripture uh, to come to. Um, it's one that I'm sure all of us are, are pretty familiar with. If not, hopefully you're familiar with it this evening uh, as we finish it. But have you ever noticed as you go to, you know, you meet different people, there's a certain name that never comes up. Judas. And when you do meet a Judas, does your skin not crawl a little bit? Like you're like, this is a little freaky. Like, hey, my name's Judas. 
And you can just sense like evil resonating from them. Like this guy is, is gone down in history as, you know, that name has carried into uh, our current uh, life as one of, of someone that it means something. When someone calls you a Judas, there's something attached. And that is that you're a betrayer, right? That's who he is. And we come to his story tonight and all great stories have a villain. Um, and this is just like the side shoot villain other than Satan in the <laughs> entirety of the Bible. But Judas is, was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' chosen men that would be the closest to him. And one of the things that, that Jesus says in verse 18 that's interesting, he says, I know whom I have chosen. Now, when Jesus chooses a person, he knows them. He does not choose apart from his knowledge of whom they are and what they will do. It was important for Jesus to tell the disciples that he was not surprised by the betrayal that would happen, uh, that would soon happen. Uh, when he explains this to them, that someone will betray me, he says, I know whom I have chosen. I am not surprised by what is taking place. This is something that Jesus has known since the beginning, that someone would betray him. It's predicted in scripture. It was something that was prophesied. And so he brings up that prophecy. Speaking of Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, he's talking about, uh, he quotes that verse, that he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Jesus tells them this, and he gives them this scripture, and he's perhaps relating it back to when, when David was writing this psalm, David was betrayed by Ahithophel, his advisor, during Absalom's um, kind of, when Absalom came to take the throne from his father. And so same thing happened. David was close to someone. He betrayed him, went into the rebellion with, with Absalom. And so Jesus quotes this this verse and saying to them, this is something that was going to happen. I knew it would happen. And he's explaining it to them. Why? Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Jesus didn't tell his disciples that one of them would betray him because he just learned about it. He knew it all along. And Jesus told them this. So the faithful disciples would remain confident in him. This wouldn't shake their faith or they wouldn't lose confidence in their Messiah. And he receives whomever I send receives me and he receives me, receives him who sent me. Jesus reminded all of the disciples, the faithful ones and Judas, that his work was not finished in those verses. He's saying that, that whoever receives you receives me. They were sent in the name of Jesus as an ambassador for him. And one thing that we want to just kind of draw out of this whole section of scripture tonight is the love of God. Now, you might be thinking like, how are you drawing that out of Jesus being betrayed? And, and here's what we need to understand. When it says in verse 21, Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. When Jesus, when it reiterates, or, or when John gets to that point, he says, Jesus is troubled. It wasn't that Jesus was unmoved or unemotionally affected by this betrayal. And John's later going to write 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. In 1 John, 
he writes with this intention of combating this idea of Gnosticism that Jesus was not in fact flesh, but he was kind of this phantom that floated around and, and as he moved, like he didn't leave footprints, you know, and so he didn't really die in the sense of a physical bodily death. And so John writes to, com uh, to combat that false teaching in 1 John. And, and here again, he makes a, a reference to the fact that Jesus was troubled. There was emotion attached to this betrayal. If you've ever been betrayed, you know how deeply like this hurts for someone to turn their back on you or to someone to, to pick you last when they said they would pick you first for sports. That's about as deep as my betrayal has gone. Like, I can't believe it. But, but I don't know what your situation is in betrayal and all of that. It's one of the like, most hurtful things that we can ever feel. And it's something that can make us kind of take this identity as, as a victim in some way. I've been betrayed. I don't know where, where that lands on you. But when, when John writes this part, He's helping us to see the humanity of Jesus, that he felt every emotion that we've ever felt. And I want to say something about emotion for a second. Emotions are not bad things, okay? Emotions are not bad things. They're things that God has given us, right? All emotion is a part of the human life that God has given to us. Emotions are actually part of, of who we are. It makes us who we are. It animates us, emotion. Now, emotions are not bad things, but they are not things that are, are supposed to drive us. If you look at it in the analogy of a car, like the engine is not the emotion. Emotions are lights on the dashboard that say that there's something wrong with the engine. It's an indication of something that's going on deeper inside. So an emotion actually reveals what's upon the heart. And we'll go more into that in the summer. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to go through the book of Proverbs but we're going to go through it in a um, topical way. Yeah, going to be pretty exciting. There's nothing I hate more than teaching through the Proverbs. So here we go. Like, it's like teaching someone's Twitter account. It's horrible. Like, it doesn't make any sense unless you, anyway, I don't know why I just said that. Let me take a sip of coffee for a second. And so often we think like emotions are a bad thing. They're not a bad thing. They become a bad thing when we're driven by the emotion. When, when the emotion has the foot on the gas and that's controlling everything, that's where it's wrong. We're not controlled by emotion, we're controlled by the Spirit of God. But emotions are things that God has given to us to help us to navigate and actually understand the issues that are going on in our heart. When Jesus says he was troubled within his spirit, there's something deep that's going on there. There's an emotion that's happening. There's something that's, that's going on in his heart. It's breaking. And it's not breaking in the sense of like, I've been wronged. It's breaking in the sense that this person who he has been close to for three years is about to turn his back on him and to be filled with Satan and to give him over for the thing that he loved most in this world. And that was money. When it comes down to it, Judas's biggest issue was not the fact that he was possessed by the devil. It was that he was possessed by possessions. He loved money more than he loved God. And it's displayed for us, I mean, in a real sense, he betrays the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Not to like blow the story. I mean, that comes in a, in a chapter or two. But 
ultimately, Judas was led astray because you cannot, as Jesus said, and Judas heard him say, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other. In Jesus' heart, he, it breaks for Judas. He loved Judas. And so in that emotion that, that he's feeling, we have to understand that Jesus is, he had human emotions. Uh, he was disturbed for Judas' sake. And it's, it's good again to be reminded of the humanity of Jesus. And at this hour, Jesus had two main concerns. It was to fulfill the word of God and to magnify the Father. If, if you read on, um, it says, now, most of you guys remember, where is it? When he does come past, we believe that I am he. No, where is it? I forget. There's like this part. to there somewhere. Sorry. The scripture Jesus quotes from is Psalm 41.9. Again, we're talking about that, that betrayal that's happening. But Jesus was concerned that Jesus' treachery would not weaken his disciples' faith. This is why he's relating it to the word of God. And, and when the disciples saw all that was fulfilled, it would make their faith actually stronger. But Jesus loves Judas. And let me give you evidence of that. Up to the very hour of his betrayal, Judas was protected by Jesus. No one knew that Judas was the betrayer. Jesus knew from the beginning he could have revealed it at any time and been like, get him, Peter. Yeah. Right? And Peter would have. You remember what he does to Malchus at, there in the garden? He chops his ear off. And he's like, how dare you? Can you imagine if he had known that Judas was the betrayer? Jesus never outed him. But from the beginning, Jesus knew. And the same spiritual privileges that the other disciples got, Judas also saw. Let me give you some examples. In order that Judas might believe in Jesus, and was given the opportunity to believe in him, he saw miracle after miracle after miracle. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did, when he multiplied bread and fish and fed thousands of people. He was there at Lazarus' tomb when Lazarus had been dead for almost four days and Jesus calls him out of the grave and Lazarus comes out walking. He was there um, when Jesus laid upon the little girl who, who was dead as well and he, he, he spoke to her, he said, little girl, awake and he was there i mean he was seeing miracles he was there at the demon possessed man when the the man came running out of the hills naked and was like Rah! <laughs> and it was chained and, and cut and, and and he had legion within him right he says call us legion for we are many remember that story in mark chapter 5 this demon possessed man that chains couldn't hold him he would break free from the tombs and where, where he was chained. He would live among the dead things. He comes out of the hills and Jesus says, go. And the demons flee from this man. He's healed in an instance. He's seated, clothed in his right mind before Jesus. Judas was there. Every single miracle, not only miracle, but the message that preceded the miracle when Jesus was there at, at the feeding of the 5,000 and, and all of that miracle that happened. And remember, he fed these people, but he also spoke a, a wonderful message. I don't know if you've read it. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Judas heard that sermon. He had every spiritual privilege that every single one of the disciples had. But the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. 
And no matter what, Judas was unwilling to admit Jesus as Lord. He would never come to that. And I, I would suggest perhaps it's because he loved money more. Um, but every spiritual privilege was given to him. And it's interesting that um, if you've ever met, there's you know, two different kinds of people that, that you see in the church a lot of times, is people that get saved later in life or kids that grow up in the church. Now, if you've talked to them, if you talk to these two different people groups, what you find is there's a fire and an appreciation for Jesus in perhaps the people that have gotten saved later in life than perhaps the kid that's been spoon-fed the Bible his entire life. And I say that as a spoon-fed kid. Like I grew up in church my whole life. My dad is a pastor and, and all of that, you know, glorious thing. My parents got saved in the tent days and, you know, and, and all of that. And, and, you know, I am a Calvary brat. That's what they call us. I'm a church kid. I'm a, you know, PK. You name it, I have been spoon-fed the gospel, the Bible, my entire life. And even now in my, you know, now that I'm in my 30s and I'm super wise, smart, I can find myself so like blasé, if I could use a French word, just about faith sometimes, about God sometimes. Like, yeah, Jesus is cool, and like he exists, like I know. But you meet someone who gets saved later in life, who like lived this, this life, who's like, I should be dead, but I'm not. And they're like, I'm more alive than I've ever been. And, the, and they're just so excited and so in love with Jesus. You know, the first strum of the guitar, he's like already weeping. They're like, oh, the grace of God. Or I'm over here like, I've heard this song like so many times. And we can take that like attitude sometimes for granted and realize like I can do all of these things for the Lord. I can be involved. I can experience the power of God and I can still not know God. James actually warns against this in the, in the book of James. He says, do not be self-deceived. He's like, you can actually deceive yourself. How many of you have ever deceived yourself? You've lied to yourself so long that you actually believe what you have lied to yourself about. And you're like, that's a weird psychosis thing. Like, I need to go lay on a couch and talk to someone and like pay them to kind of deal with these issues. But, but sorry, no, you can talk to me. But I don't have a degree or anything. So, so here's, here's the point. I lost it. Jane says you can be self-deceived. You can deceive yourself in thinking because you hear it, because you speak it, that you have actually done it. You can become an expert on something by reading something or, or listening to something. You can become an expert on it and never even touch it. And James says, let it not be so that we deceive ourselves in thinking because we speak it and because we hear it that we're actually doing it. Because faith is something that you do. It's an action word. And because you believe in Jesus, there's a following of a lifestyle that is included. And it's amazing. You can see it in the life of Judas. He had every spiritual privilege. Every spiritual privilege. He was there at some of the greatest miracles of all time. I mean, he walked with Jesus for three years. It, it, even John says, if we were to include 
all of the miracles of Jesus and all of the sayings of Jesus, we, all of the libraries in the world would not be able to hold it. Judas experienced all of that and yet he missed heaven. And we can't read this lightly and be like, oh, that's, but I, I, this is very much a reality for every human being. Is if your desire and your love is caught up in something else more than Jesus, you will deceive yourself. You'll deceive yourself into thinking that you're somewhere that you're not. And I have to check myself with this all the time. Like this does not exempt pastors or people that teach the word of God. Just because you serve in a church, doesn't, that doesn't mean like, what does that mean? Yes, it's a great thing and you should do it right on. Be one of those things. But your affection for Jesus and your love for Jesus and your faith in him is not replaced by your service to him. Does that make sense? What does Jesus say? And when people come into his heaven and they say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. And it's a real sobering thought to look at the character of Judas and, the, and really it's easy to remove yourself from it and be like, but the intention of John's gospel is what? That we might believe. And to look at the life of Judas and say, let that not be me. Because all of us, in a sense, have betrayed Jesus in our speech, in, in our action. We've betrayed him in the sense that we're children of, of God, but yet we betray that with our speech or in our actions and, and things like that. But may it not be so that we claim the name of Christ, but never fully take on the identity of Jesus in, uh, in our lives. Um, as it moves on in verse 22, it says, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, the other gospels record for us that they all started asking, Is it I? Is it I? I remember watching this like little um, Hanna Barbera video when I was a kid. It was the Last Supper, it was like the crucifixion of Jesus. It was a cartoon. And like at the Last Supper, all of the disciples were like, Is it I? And their mouths wouldn't move. But is it I? And it, all of them went through it, all 12, even Judas, Is it I? And it, I found it fascinating, even as an eight-year-old or whenever I watched it um, last week. No, as, like, like, you find it fascinating. Like, they all ask, like, is it me? And you would think, like, why, why would you need to ask that question? I don't know. If you were in that room, I'd be like, who is it? Raise your hand. Let's get this over with. Let's just beat you right now. It's you, isn't it, Philip? You're weird. Or whatever. Or, the, like, the weird named one. Or, or, you know, there's two Judases. Which one? Um, but all of them ask the question, like, is it I? Because I think all of them recognize the potential in their own life to do it. Because in the next verses, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So in, in the reality of it, they were all thinking at some point, I'm with Jesus to get something from him to get to a place of exaltation. And so all of them thought, at some point being second isn't gonna be enough for me. And I could potentially just betray him like anyone else. It's fascinating. And I think it's, it's good to think about for a minute that like inside of me is the potential for such great evil apart 
from the grace of God in my life. Right? James, James I love the book of James. But when he talks, he talks about how um, murdering someone begins, or Jesus actually said, when, when you murder someone, it actually began where? In the heart. It's in you. And it's fleshed out through your members. Idol, or adultery, where does it begin? In the heart. And it's then fleshed out through your hands and through your body. Where does it all begin? It says it's not, it's not what comes out of a man that defiles him. Or what goes into, sorry, not what goes into a man that defiles him. Ham sandwiches don't make you evil. Evil exists inside of you from birth. That is the problem. There's a sin issue at the very beginning. Although ham is probably not the best thing for you. But that's not what makes you sinful. It's that sin already exists in the appetite for it exists. And so in the same way, we got to look at the, the lives of the, the disciples and those that were closest to Jesus and think, like, could it be me? Like self-examination of like, yeah, I do have some evil messed up stuff in my heart. Pretty jacked up things. Like if you could see it on the screen behind me, like just some of the sin, right? And some of the evil things that go through <laughs> my, my little head sometimes you would be horrified and you would lock me up in prison and like throw it like this guy's sick and twisted. And sometimes you hear it come out of my mouth, don't you? You're like, wow, that was jacked up. I didn't know Andrew was that angry of a man. I am. I really am. <laughs> Great pastor, horrible Christian, you know? Um, so there's just, there's that inside. Anyway, verse 25, as they begin to ask, right? John is sitting next to Jesus and he identifies himself. Look, now they were leaning back on, on Jesus and, and one again, you know, leaning up against him as they reclined at the table. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is what John called himself, the one whom Jesus loved. John would later be called the apostle of love. As he wrote 1 John, the theme of, of 1 John is always love. And, and it was something that deeply affected his life, is the love that Jesus had for him and his disciples. But he identifies himself as the one that Jesus loved. And, and Simon Peter therefore motioned him and asked, he's like, dude, find out who it is. Blimey. So I don't know how he said it. Like, find out who it is. Mm. And so he leans back on Jesus and tilts his head. And he asks, Lord, who is it? Who could it be? Just between you and me. You don't have to tell anybody. Remember you love me the most? You should just tell me. And Jesus says, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, when I was a kid, we took communion one time. I remember them not having individual cups for communion. And they we were like, just dip it in. And I was like, no, absolutely not. That is the sign of the betrayer. Remember, I remember I was at a, a different church that I grew up in. It was like this hip, cool church. And like during worship, they had these lit up crosses in the back. And they're like, if you want to take communion during worship, you can. So I went back there and I was like, where's the juice? I'm like, oh, you just dip. And I'm like, I'm out of here. It's the sign of the betrayer. This church is whack, you know, or whatever. And so it's always kind of carried that idea with it for me. When Jesus did this, this was offered to Judas as an act of love and honor. In that culture, it was an act of, of love and honor to that person who was sitting at the table with you. 
it, it wasn't like, this is who it is. It wasn't a way of identifying. It wouldn't have been something obvious to the entire table. It wasn't something that was obscure to be like, oh my goodness, that's the sign. It was something of honor and love. And so none of them expected it. No one even suspected it was Judas. And it's such an amazing, again, a picture of the love of Jesus. That even to the one that would betray him to the cross, he offers them love and honor. And even in that moment, still saying, there's a chance. Change your mind. The love of God beckons to humanity to change. It's ultimately the, the one thing that God says, this is how you know that I love you. And it's the cross. And he says, listen, the, the sign, later he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, this body, this blood that is broken, it's for you as well. Would you please accept it? I mean, love and honor. And, and Matthew's gospel alludes to the fact that Judas was close enough to Jesus, meaning that perhaps he was seated in the place of honor at the table, even. So no one expected it. When Jesus says to him, what you do, do it quickly. And he got up and left. It says that all of them were like, what? Like, cool. I guess Judas has got some extra discipleship like opportunities tonight. Going to feed the poor or whatever. Look what it says. Um, but no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because uh, Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor, having received the piece of bread and then went out immediately and it was night. It, it's such a fascinating thing. Like, you would think like this is the sign of the betrayer. This is how they would know. None of them had any clue. They just thought like, wow, what a great honor for Judas. Jesus, even in his last moments, didn't out him as the betrayer. And again, it's just a sign. Like, Jesus loves every person, no matter how wicked or evil they are. His love is extended. And it's comforting for me, knowing how wicked and evil I am, that his love is still extended to me um, and you. Because you're evil and wicked too. Verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, now is the time. The Son of Man is to be glorified and glorified in God. And God is glorified in him. The thing that brought God glory. I think all of us, if you think like, uh, if you were to write out the goal of your life some, at some point, you would say like, I want to glorify God with my life. I want to bring God glory in the things that I do. A chapter or two ago, we talked about that. Like the, the will of God in our life is to bring God glory. Well, what does that look like? How do we glorify God with our life? It's very simple. It is to obey the commands of God, his word, and to seek to fulfill the will of God for your life. To obey him. That brings God glory. And when Jesus says now is the time for 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's saying, now I'm going to be obedient to the will of God in that I will be obedient unto the point of death. And he says to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come yet a little while longer, he said, and you will follow me. All of them would give their life for Jesus. They would die that death. They would give their life in in, um, surrendering to the Lord. Um, Most of them were martyrs for the faith. John was boiled in hot oil. He was banished to the island of Patmos. He was the only one, I think, who died of old age. Everyone else was killed off. One was eaten by um, wild beasts and animals. One of them was drugged through the, the cities on, by, by, the, um, by horses until he died. Some was beaten with clubs. I mean, all of them gave their lives for Jesus. But here he says in verse 34... Right, A little while longer I will be with you. And so I'm going to say some very important things to you. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. And the commandment is that you love one another. And the new commandment is not something that's new in the sense of like, this is the newest thing out there. But what he's saying is this is a new and fresh way to experience the love of God. The cross was going to redefine the love of God uh, at, at this moment. And so he's saying, in this way, this is the new command. So love is this. Love for the Christian is a command. It is not an option. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be angry, A, or I'm going to be bitter, B, and C, like, oh, I guess I could be totally, you know, constipated. No, I can be, you know, or D, I can love, I can choose. One of these three, you know, four things, I have options in which I'm going to be towards this person. I can be angry, I can be bitter, I can be contentious, or I can love them. And like today I'm going to choose anger. Like that's not the option. Jesus says love is not an option for the believer, but is an outflow of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that gives us the ability to love beyond what we are actually capable of. And so he says, for, this is the command. Now, if, if we're looking at commandments in the Bible, like what does God want me to do? What is the will of God for my life? The command that God gives to us is to love. So love is a commandment. Secondly, love is to be copied. Look what he says. I want you to love each other, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so if we look at like, what does that look like for me? If I'm going to obey that command, because it's not an option, it's a command for me from Jesus' own lips. How am I to live that out? Well, we look at what Jesus did. He says, in the way that I have loved you, right? You also love one another. The verses before Jesus got down, girded himself with a towel and washed their feet and he served them. Jesus never asks us to do something that he himself has not modeled first. And so he sought to take the lowest place and to serve those he loved most. And really he's saying, this is the way we're to love one another. We're to serve one another. We're to take the low spot. To seek to love through serving or, or to love through, through the letting go of self and to seeking to bless others before ourselves. And the last thing is love is, to me- love is meant to convince. So love is, is a command. Love is to be copied. 
And love is also to, is meant to convince. Look what he says in verse 33. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I love that word all. If you have a pen, circle it. And you can do a word study on that later. Uh, all, in this context, it actually means all. It's real simple. Like it, it, This will be assigned to everyone. Every single person, it will be a sign of who you belong to by how you love each other. Because no one has loved us like Jesus has. Like no one loves anyone like Jesus has loved us. And we are to copy that. And we are to, in, in doing so, it will convince people of the reality of God in our life because that type of love that is sacrificial and it's unconditional, right? That's how Jesus loved us. That type of love is supernatural. It's supernatural. It's beyond what we are capable of mustering up in and of our own humanity. And so that type of love is something that exists only from being born again of the spirit of God. So it's meant to convince. And this is the command that Jesus gives us to do. We're going to finish the chapter. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Speaking of Peter's death. Now, Peter was crucified upside down. Um, remember, Jesus said, are you willing? And he's like, I'm willing to go to I'm willing to go with you. I'm going to die for you. And Jesus says, Are, you don't really understand what you're asking. You will die as I die, but you'll die up, upside down. He's crucified upside down. Crucifixion is the most gruesome way of dying. Um, and we'll get to that in a few weeks is the crucifixion process. And we have a whole teaching on it. It's, you know, scientifically what it does to your body. It's horrific. The Romans perfectly figured out how to torture someone long, as long as they could to inflict the maximum amount of pain and to keep you as alive as long as they could. It's sick. Um, Peter did that upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die as my Lord. So when he says that you, where are you going? Like, I want to go with you. He says, where I'm going, you can't go yet, yet, but you will. Um, you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, this is a story that I'm sure you're, you're well familiar with. It's a sad story. But I, I believe, again, we got to look back on the character of Jesus. What, did, what have we been talking about? Love. Love. Jesus loves us. He loves us. Peter, will you die for my sake? He says, you think you're the hero right now? You're, you're going to deny me three times. But I love you. It's such a, um, this, this story in, in like the last, I think, four or five chapters that we're in, it's 24 hours that, that's being described for us. And in that 24 hours, Jesus is going to say like some of the most important things and deep things. And he's saying that to his disciples. And this, he's talking to, remember who he's talking to? He's talking to guys that will leave him. These are his closest friends. And the minute he gets arrested, they're all going to run. His closest 
some, one of his closest friends who says, I will die for you, will say to a group of people three different times, I want nothing to do with that man. I don't know him. I've never been with him. I don't know him. He'll deny him. And again, Jesus would say, I love you. This is going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I just want you to know, Peter, I love you. And as I have loved you unconditionally, sacrificially, love one another. This is a command for us, guys. This is not an option for us. And as easy as it is to just go the other way and not love. Like, this is not an easy thing to do. It's so much easier and a lot more times more fun to like be hateful and to be angry and to be bitter. It's a lot more fun. Um, creates a lot more drama in our life. Like, but it's not an option. The command is to love in order that we might copy what Jesus has modeled for us and that others would be convinced that God is real. Isn't that insane? Um, so let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, God, that you first loved us, as John would later write, that you loved us first, and that's how we, we know what love is. And uh, there's so many people today who are just so confused on what love is, and it's just, it's been, it's been switched with lust, and um, it's immediate. It, it only, it, love is something that we only have if, if we're satisfied, and, uh, Lord, we, we pray as believers, we want to know, but we want to know truly what godly love is and to um, be those that extend it to others. And even those that don't look like us, even those that um, would betray us and hurt us, Lord, we want to continue to be those of forgiveness and love um, because that's what you've done for us. That's what you've modeled for us. And you've commanded us to do that. And so... Lord, as your followers, as your, as your children, we want to model the heart of the Father to those that, uh, that don't know you. And so Lord, we love you as we sing to you tonight. God, we pray that you would move upon our heart and just begin to rid us of self and, and different things that, uh, maybe burdens that we're carrying, bitterness that, that's holding on and frustration and anger. And uh, God, that we might draw closer to you as you just remove the flesh from us. And, and uh, so God, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name.